You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week we're talking about kimchi and mother-in-laws, a few other events that have happened or are coming up, as well as the uh, number one cheese producer in the country and yogurt drinks for the summer months. All this and more in episode 66. So I just got home, but... When I was at work, um, I was talking to um, a girlfriend of mine. She is from um, South Korea and uh, just got back from vacation. Today was her first day back. And uh, during lunch, we were asking her questions about South Korea and how her trip was. And somehow the topic of kimchi was brought up um, because they just eat so much of it. And uh, I think someone had asked her if she had any good kimchi and um, all the different varieties of kimchi and all that kind of stuff. Um, And somehow, too, the topic got turned to Korean weddings. I think because she has a boyfriend and they've been dating for a long time and um, it was just a bunch of girls sitting around. So that's kind of sometimes how conversations go kimchi to weddings i guess in sure. our world but uh she she was telling us that it's very traditional um in korean south korean weddings to have kimchi at the wedding it's a very traditional gift but the bride has to make it and the and her mother-in-law judges her on her kimchi so it has to be really good because she's trying to impress her mother-in-law or soon-to-be mother-in-law with kimchi. And I don't know if um, – I didn't hear this last part, um, but I want to say, and this could be totally wrong, um, that the mother-in-law can say like, no, nah, you really – you know, she can be very blunt and say like, no, nah, you need to work on your kimchi skills because um, it's not so great. Or um, I I don't even – I don't, I don't want to say that she can go as far as like, you can't marry my son – because your kimchi sucks. But it kind of has that um, feeling the way that my friend was talking about it, um, that it is kind of a deal breaker if you can't make good kimchi. Man, I really like I'm assuming you don't probably have that much more information about it at this time, but it brings up all kinds of questions for, uh, you know, do, do, are they required to have a certain kind of kimchi? I mean, is it is it the like the traditional kind of red shit kimchi or can it be a quicker kimchi? And if. Yeah, I don't know. I asked her what kind and she said it just had to be kimchi. So she didn't I mean, she didn't really elaborate on the style that they had to do. Um, so. I'm wondering if it's just you just have to make it. Man, that's uh, that's that's kind of kind of tough, I would think. But because it's, but but given that most people have grown up, at least probably people that are going to be following this kind of tradition have grown up having done and made kimchi with their families or whatnot. Like it's probably a little less concerning than it maybe sounds at first to to me. But at the same time, then it's like well are they judging that person? Like, are they judging the bride or are they judging the family's recipes? Um, and that's where I don't know where. That's a great question. I'm not quite sure because it is such a traditional food and it's made, I mean, you start to learn, you, you learn how to make kimchi at an early age because they just make, you know, they eat it as the, what we would consider as maybe bread. Um, and they just have it all the time. Um, so I don't know if, if they would be judging, her or the recipe or, um, you know, all of those things. But the funny thing about my friend is, um, you know, she was 
born and lived in Korea in, in South Korea for a very long time, but then she moved to the United States. Um, I'm not quite sure when exactly, but uh, she does not know how to make kimchi at all. Oh no! I think that also brought up the whole wedding conversation too, is because we, she was talking about um, how traditional it is to make it and eat it, and everyone eats it in South Korea, um, and she admitted that she doesn't know how to do it at all. And so w- w- the joke was, well, what's going to happen if if you get married to your boyfriend? Because he's also from South Korea. Like, you have to go through this whole traditional thing of, like, your mother-in-law is going to judge you with your kimchi. That's that's tough. I mean, do you know if since, uh, you know, if she were to get married in the, in the States, are there is there a community of South Koreans that still follow those things stateside? Those same kind of like traditions. I would have to ask her. I didn't. I didn't think of that when I was um, talking to her. It doesn't. There's not much of a a Korean um, community in San Diego, but where she's from, she's from Northern California. So okay. I, I, I would think that there would be, or um, you know, I'm sure just her family and his family. They are both from South Korea. So they would probably do very traditional things and try, try to follow along those same cultures and cultures the same way that we follow certain traditions for American or Western weddings, um, like cutting the cake together and the first dance and all of that kind of stuff. So they probably do. I'm sure they would do the, um, the traditional Korean or South Korean um, um, cultural things. Yeah. And I, I think that has to be tougher than I would think for say since a lot of people that live in the cities or other reasons like it's it's sometimes becoming more convenient for younger generations to no longer make their kimchi and just buy it at the supermarket and i i wonder how that affects like you know like i could just i could see it making some good uh good movie drama for a cheesy kind of uh comedy movie or something like that where like the city girl's marrying a country boy and uh she's the one supposed to prepare the kimchi and she's like your friend and doesn't have any clue how to make kimchi because she's always bought it. Um, yeah. Well, maybe she would just go and uh, just buy some, a really great brand that she likes and she thinks is great and kind of hide it um, the way that in some, you know, American comedies, a, a woman who can't cook, she'll buy, you know, a really expensive meal. Um, and when they deliver it, they, she'd put it on like a plate or something to make it look like she made, spent all day in the kitchen and hide, hide all of the food wrappers and the, you know, the evidence of her not actually making it. And then does the story unfold as in she gets caught or does she get away with it the whole time? I don't know. That's we'll a good, we'll have to, I'll have to ask her what she would do in that situation since she doesn't know how to make it. Yeah. If it was, you know, dire straits, she had to do something. What would she do? And then we can turn it into a, a, a screenplay and we can have the, the firm ups first kimchi movie. Yeah, <laughs> which actually reminds me of I forget like the kimchi battle is I think what it's called. It's like a a sequel to a other foreign movie, and I don't know if it's a Japanese movie or a Korean movie because it involves people from both Japan and Korea. But it's a it's a foreign film, and it's a kimchi battle. It was on Netflix at one point. I watched a part of it. Everyone should watch it. It's interesting, and it wasn't as bad as I was thinking. A lot of like comedy Asian movies can be kind of like cheeky and cheesy and so can a lot of American movies, but I don't generally like it's, it's easier for me to know what I'm getting into with an American movie. Whereas it's like, I don't really know what I'm getting into sometimes with foreign films. So that one though, kimchi battle, check it out. Huh. And so they made an entire movie about 
kimchi or that's just it's just a i'm the name of the movie Uh, no it's like two chefs it's uh le grand chef two so it's the second it's it's a sequel to i don't know what the le grand chef one was but i think it was something different and it is uh during a state visit to Japan, the Korean president gets involved in a heated debate with the Japanese prime minister over the origins of kimchi. And then there's a Japanese uh, and a Korean chef that are are battling it out. Hmm. <laughs> I'll have to see if it's on Netflix because um, that would just be really funny to watch uh, just because it's about kimchi. And that's such an unusual topic for a movie. Well, not for a South Korean movie, though. Remember, it is South Korea. It's 119 minutes, and it came out in January 28th of 2010. (laughs) Well, I'll have to check it out and see what it's all, you know, I'll report back if I watch it this week. Yes, please do, um, because I I should watch it at some point when I have more time, too, because I'll, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, too, at least the Wikipedia page, because if I can find the Netflix thing, I'll do that, too. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, you were telling me about some festivals that are coming up in the near future and in your neck of the woods. Yeah, one was I don't think it's anything like I don't I, it, it just it, it stood out to me because it's sauerkraut and it's the um, it's southern Minnesota. It's Henderson, Minnesota. I lived in Minnesota for a year or so, but I was in Minneapolis. I don't know exactly where Henderson is, but they have a sauerkraut days like a lot of things in the Midwest like Wisconsin, like sauerkraut, brats, all kinds of beer, all kinds of things that come from European heritages that are also fermented. But uh, Henderson, Minnesota, I guess, has a German heritage. And so they started this festival back in the Great Depression. And this is what I actually think is interesting about it. Otherwise, it's just like a free festival from a small town. And I, I don't know how much it really stands out. But like they started it back in the Great Depression to bring people in to generate revenue. But then it turned into... Uh, an uncontrollable crowd over the years. They had thousands of people coming in each year. And this was a really small town. I don't know how large it was when they started, but even today it's only 900 people. So thousands of people coming in, uh, they were trying to solve ways of um, getting like uh, working with the, the people that would be visiting uh, crowd control, getting them around. They, they started a owl parade or some kind of parade that would involve the visitors. So they, anyone could join in and then they would walk to the end of uh, the parade would be at the end of the town. And they would hope people would like get the idea and like, okay, it's time to head home now, but it didn't work. And so they actually canceled it in the 1960, the late 1960s because there was just too much damage to the town. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, and really funny. Uh, but isn't it, wouldn't sauerkraut be kind of early? I mean, if you're thinking of like seasonal foods with cabbage and stuff, isn't cabbage more of a late harvest fall type of food? Yeah. I but know, I, I always consider it like that. Yeah. But this is, well, it's a small town. Well, okay. Let's think about this. I guess I just think of it as, as like a sauerkraut, sauerkraut days would be more appropriate towards like, uh, September, October, November, something like that. Cause um, but I get what, uh, well, I guess that also thinking if you, if you harvest your cabbage in those months and then you make sauerkraut, then it'd be ready in June. I guess and there's, there's a lot of cabbage for. that will go will overwinter and then it could be started later or like in the spring. Possibly it's not generally the best cabbage for sauerkraut, but then also there's, you know, that they could still have sauerkraut that it was forming all winter. But I think the reality is that it was, uh, if I read in that article correctly, that uh, Frank's 
sauerkraut, which I don't know if you have that out there, but it's, it's just like a big canned sauerkraut. I think that's where all their sour free sauerkraut's coming from. And I think that a long time ago that Frank's was also a part of it. Um, because I think Frank's has probably been around for a very long time, mm-hmm. but then in, in that regard, it's, it's just, it's canned sauerkraut. So it doesn't matter what time it is. It's not as much about the, the tradition of the German heritage of making it as much as it is that eating it. I think. Okay. Oh, that makes more sense. I guess yeah. then you can have any sort of festival at any time of the year. Um, I, I guess I'm just thinking of uh, um, when I was growing up in Indiana, we have, uh, you know, lots of fall festivals and they're all geared towards um, like an apple apple festival because um, that's in the fall or strawberry festival, which was in the spring for whatever seasonal fruit was ripe. Um and it was always like a lot of fun. I can only imagine that this these sauerkraut days are lots of fun, and the whole entire town probably stops whatever it's doing just to go go eat sauerkraut and have fun for the for the few days. But um, do they have like um a like a queen contest or anything like that? I feel like every small town who has a festival like this, uh, whether it's strawberries, apples, or whatever, they have some sort of like princess. Or... You you are from small town then. I I don't have any experience with any of this kind of stuff. But they did they said they had a the crowning of Miss Henderson. And the only reason why I knew that was because the image, like the fine uh, print says that it's because they have a um, a cabbage tossing uh, event and Miss Henderson from 2012 or like it was an old photo was tossing a cabbage or holding a cabbage ready to be tossed. So they do have a Miss Henderson in the Henderson mm-hmm. Minnesota. Hmm. So are you going to make it this year? It looks like it's um, towards the end of June. No, I don't think it's, I mean, again, it's like, it's, I don't know how great the sauerkraut would be. I mean, no offense. I mean, maybe it maybe it will be great, but it's just, I mean, it's like I can get canned sauerkraut anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea of making a trek for that, like I'll go for like fermentation festivals or food, food festivals, but this is just like a free small town event. I mean, it's like a, now it's a town of 900 with, that brings in four to 5,000 people. And I really need to look at a map to see where Henderson, Minnesota is because that may or may not be that drastic of a number because yeah, it's quite a few more, but at the same time, if it's a really small town surrounded by a bunch of other small towns with no one that has anything to do on the weekend, then it makes sense that they would bring in that many people. Or is that being mean to small towns? Oh no, it's not being mean to small towns. I mean, I, I'm just amazed. There must be a, that the, Amount there would be five thousand people that would attend this festival in a in a town where there's so few people. So they must have like some really great sauerkraut or like some bands or something. There has to be something that's going on. Maybe they have a fantastic beer garden for all we know. Um, I'm sure there's beer and I'm sure there's brats. I mean, it's German heritage. I'm sure they've got all of those things covered. If anyone's ever been to this thing, I would be interested to know if. Um, I, I mean, I'm interested in like how it started in the Great Depression out of desperation to bring in money. I mean, and I like it for, it's not like a foodie kind of event, but it's definitely something that gets people. I mean, we have enough of these kind of things in Wisconsin that I can go to a, a bunch, but if someone tells me it's so amazing that it can't be missed, then I would, I would love to hear that. You'll, you'll take the trek up there to Henderson and check it out. <laughs> I will not commit to that because I still have not looked at a map yet, but <laughs> if it's not in the, the far North near Canada, then maybe. Okay. Well, well, maybe, maybe, maybe someone will get a hold of us about the this uh, sauerkraut days festival, and then give us some more info as to as to how it is and what's going on. Yeah. But you also said that, um, or sent me um an, a link for a different kind of festival. One that, that just already happened. happened, 
and one that's also potentially far away or is far away unless you live in Ireland. Um, and, uh, that was the, uh, I may not be pronouncing this route correctly, but the, uh, the Bali Malu literary festival of food and wine. It looked like it would have been a great festival to attend. It was May 16th, 17th and 18th. So you already missed it if you didn't know about it. And I'm sorry, but Sander Katz was there. And that's the only reason why I knew about it. I saw that he had tweeted about that. And at the same time, uh, this came into my newsfeed and I saw it was a real nice images and blog post about this. I mean, it makes sense that there would probably be a decent amount of blog posts about a festival that involves a lot of bloggers because they had bloggers there. They had, um, book authors. They had, uh, chefs. Rene Rizepi from Noma was there and it looked like, I mean, it looked like there was like 50 plus people talking. Um, and I was very glad to see that that person said that, uh, Sander Katz's talk was definitely one of their highlights and uh, they enjoyed that which I can always imagine because he's always great to listen to, but um, especially for people that I don't know how often he gets in Ireland, but uh, it looked like a good time. Did you have a chance to look at any of that? Um, I'm looking at it now and I think it, it, it just looks like it's a fun way to mesh um, food and I, you know, literature together. Uh, um, did you say anything like if it's mostly, how, how is it like literary, but also food related? Like, do they have book readings and then they just happen to have also people in the food world talking or how do they like blend the two together so that it kind of makes more sense? I guess that's my question. Hmm. Someone will have to get back to us that was there. I don't know. I Uh, people in the food industry, uh, like some of the top chefs and different things in, in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, they brought, seem to bring in quite a few people from elsewhere, but m- mostly Europe. And then of course, Sander Katz, uh, was, was brought in as well. And so there was, uh, book signings for some of the different cookbook authors and different things like that. I mean, it was just, um, I don't know where the, like, if literature as in literature fiction writing was a part of it. Or okay. or how much that was. I mean, well, I, didn't- I mean, it says here too that I there was a talk about um, someone. Um, her name is Caroline, and she was she gave a talk about the best and the worst cookbooks. So maybe that's kind of how they blend the yeah. literature and the food together. Exactly. Well, and they they go so well together. I mean, people have written about food for so long, and food tastes delicious while reading. That's, That's my- true. And I mean, you also just said too, that it's a, it's a, there's lots of food bloggers there and that, you know, people are, you know, you can kind of mesh that and bridge that gap of food bloggers writing about food and you're talking about food and there is food and Sandra Katz is there. So it kind of all falls, I guess, under that umbrella of just very general, anything related to food and in literature, which I like, I like general, like things that mash a whole lot of things together because, you know, it's like, um, like I love, uh, fermentation related festivals, but at the same time, like it's generally geared towards, uh, you know, beginners or whatnot. And so like, there's not as generally as much in-depth stuff, at least for the festivals, um, that I've attended and like, so I might get a few things out of it, but it's more about like connecting with people when I go. Whereas like something like this would not only be connecting, but it would also be probably learning different aspects and being able to make connections in different ways because there's a lot of things about food that I may know, but there are plenty of other things that I have no clue about. And this would be definitely a way to, to expand and stretch and, and, and reach. And I, I think it's worth at least checking out. So I am it. 
it seemed like they might be doing it again, and especially with as big as it was, it seemed like it was a success. So um, if anyone is near Ireland or just looking for a vacation for next year, it might be around the same time. So pay attention for that. But I, I really wanted to, uh, you know, point out that this like feud between Wisconsin and California, when it comes to cheese making that Wisconsin did remain the leader and uh, sorry, California, you were not able to, um, to beat us. No, but we were, we came in second. So <laughs> yes, we're right. We're on, we're on your tail. Yes. I mean, it's, it's uh, Wisconsin, according to the USDA's 2013 dairy product summary produced 2.856 billion pounds of cheese. And that's up from 2.790 billion in 2012. Um, California, yeah, you had 2.312 billion pounds, but that was up from 2.247 billion. Yeah, so we're lagging a little bit, but I mean, that's still a lot of cheese. Um, and I mean, I, I, California is a really big state too. Wisconsin, I mean, Wisconsin's not as big as California, so I'm really impressed at that. Are you talking size or size, population? Si- size as in um, land. Um, How much yeah. bigger is it? Wisconsin's pretty big. I mean, Wisconsin's pretty big. California's a little skinnier, but a little longer. I mean, does it, to go from Southern California to like the Oregon border, I, I think it's about a 10 to 12 hour drive. Yeah, but, you're, but, but that's because you're skinny. Like that's a, like you're just like a little strip. Okay, well, how long does it take to drive um, from one end of Wisconsin to the other? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, 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 let's say that from the, like, you know, Madison's not very far up. So uh, from the Iowa border up, it's about like an hour, hour and a half. So it's like not much, but we're so low. So then you add another like six, seven, eight hours to get to Canada. And then plus we're, we're wider. Oh, we'll just follow up on this instead of trying to speculate more. About. Okay. We'll figure out well, which, which place has, I mean, I'm sure you win by population, no doubt, but I yeah. do not know about the, uh, the size. So we will follow up on that, but it is, I, I will give you credit and I really am not as competitive as I'm making it sound because you as in you're some somehow different because you're in California, but, um, but mozzarella in California, uh, was number one, Wisconsin had cheddar as the number one, but, uh, but if we're breaking it down into categories, California produces way more mozzarella, probably the, the crappy, um, skim, uh, like partially hyd- uh, partially dried stuff or whatever that is, the stuff that's put on pizza as opposed to mm-hmm. like the, like beautiful stretched curd, Mozzarella that tastes delicious, buffalo or whatever. The buffalo mozzarella. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with um by it has to do with um there I know for sure there is a very large mozzarella cheese food plant in Northern California. Um so I'm sure that, that probably skews the scales a little bit um when it comes to mozzarella production uh for California versus Wisconsin. Um but I mean, Wisconsin cheddar—that's kind of one. I think isn't that like your signature cheese anyway? I don't know. Maybe sure. Like what Wisconsin's known for? I feel like that's whenever I get like American-made with like cheddar, it's always from Wisconsin. Or the really great brands of cheddar cheese that I like are from are made in Wisconsin, not so much in California. So, well, and it's also it's it's always hard to it's hard to look at cheeses because some of it's 
regional base too, because I'm sure that like maybe the, the best cheddars that you get out there are probably from Wisconsin because they're probably the farthest reaching in, in general. But then sometimes I'm sure there's better or not better, but like different great artisanal cheeses in different regions that just don't have the national reach to get all the way across the country to California too. So it's hard to say, but yeah, I, I'm sure that, I mean, Wisconsin's known as the dairy land. So I'm not originally from Wisconsin, so I, I don't, uh, uh, talk as if I really know much about any of this stuff, but, mm-hmm. um, but in any way though, you do have in California way more butter production, 634 point million pounds of butter was produced in 2013. The second closest runner up is 89.2 million pounds and that's Pennsylvania. That's like hundreds that's- of millions of difference. Where where is all this butter coming from? Because I, I guess have no idea. That's a really great question. I know that there are lots of cows in 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 Wisconsin in California, and um, I know that like the central the central part of California and a little like where the coast is, and then inward with the San Juan Joaquin Valley and everything like that. There's um, lots of farmland there, but I feel like that's farmland, not necessarily where there's a lot of cattle and a lot of dairy farms, but I'm sure that it all kind of falls together. So, but man, that's a lot of butter. I had no idea. I mean, I just, I guess I just always assumed cheese when it came to you know, what came to dairy from California. Um, there's commercials all the time about California cheese and um, happy cows come from California, all these things. But uh, I never really thought about the butter and how much butter they're producing. Yeah. And I don't know how cheese is so much easier to market butter. I mean, but amazing butter tastes amazing, but like to the general public, I just can't imagine it's like California, the butter state. Right. Well, and yeah, it doesn't really like flow kind of doesn't fall off your tongue as well as cheese does and that sort of thing. Um, By the way, California in total square miles is 163,000 just to cover to cover that. And then Wisconsin is 65,000. Okay, so you're a lot. Okay, fine. A little bigger. (laughs) That's a lot. But um, huh. I'm going to have to look at a map again now. Okay. Well, thank you for looking that up and thanks that we didn't have to keep guessing. Um, <laughs> no problem. But I mean, I am very impressed by how much, how much dairy Wisconsin makes and all of the dairy cows that are there. The few times I have been to Wisconsin and um, just the quantity of cheese that is produced there. It's amazing. I mean, oh, I feel okay. like all if I were to live in Wisconsin, all I, I mean, in Indiana, it's all cornfields and soybean fields and stuff mm. like that. But if I, if I went to Wisconsin, I feel like all I would see would be dairy farms everywhere. There's, there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of the like factory, like blocked off animals. Like there's the not so nice dairy farms that just smell and they don't really do much for aesthetics, but then there are way more that it's just like, yeah, the rolling Hills seeing the, the pastured, um, cows, um, is, is much more enjoyable. I find than having grown up in Iowa and driving through cornfields, no offense, but it's just rolling, rolling Hills make for a more scenic drive. If I have to drive a long distance. I agree too. And it's a little more enjoyable to see animals outside in those rolling fields and hills than to just see flat cornfields and soybean fields. And that's it. 
So, but all this talk about about cows and dairy makes me think of yogurt, and uh, oh, that's yeah. also because uh, New York Times also just posted a article about yogurt drinks and not too smooth. Um, they uh, they just had some different things about yogurt smoothies, but then also made mention to uh, some other yogurt based drinks. And it seems like now that it's starting to maybe get a little bit warmer, we just went through another like dip of coldness. So we'll see. Maybe eventually we'll get warm here, but you know, it's like once it starts getting warmer, things like Iran, like the Turkish Iranian drink with, uh, that's like watered down yogurt with a little bit of pinch of salt blended up is generally how I'll make it. And so just like one part, I guess back up one part yogurt to four parts water, three or four parts water, depending on how thin someone wants it. And then just a pinch of salt or whatnot. And that just, it's so refreshing on a hot summer day, little ice in there if a person wants. Um, and have you ever had Iran or made it? No, I haven't. I've never even heard of it. Um, I was just about to ask you, is there like a certain type of yogurt that you can use? Um, like a Bulgarian style it? yogurt, like okay. a, any commercial yogurt would work just fine. I mean, I would, I wouldn't necessarily go with the Greek yogurt because you want to do more water if that's the case, because it just seems kind of counterintuitive to use yogurt that has already been strained liquid from, and then add more uh, liquid to, but Hey, everyone can do whatever is available. So, uh, but yeah, I just say like any kind of, uh, if a person's not making their own yogurt, just get some yogurt at the store and eat any whole fat yogurt and uh, full fat and then mix that up and it's going to taste delicious. Uh, it's surprisingly delicious, actually. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's like, okay, that sounds like it'd be really plain. It's just watered down yogurt with a little bit of salt in it. But on a hot summer day, it's great. So it reminded me of that with this article. There was also a nice thing about, um, you know, a rhubarb yogurt smoothie that I didn't realize was a video until I was just uh, recollecting these show notes because I had looked at it originally on my phone and the video all of a sudden appeared. And so there's a, a yogurt um, smoothie video that if you look on a computer, as opposed to the mobile version, you'll see that too. But uh, one of the things I wasn't familiar with was Borhani, which is like a herbal mix of different spices that's often served at weddings. We're, we're making like the full circle started with <laughs> weddings, ending with weddings. Um, is there a specific like country or um, culture? Bang- where they uh, would- Bangladesh. So okay. it's um, Asia region, Southeast Asia. Um, so I don't know how far it stretches out, but but Borhani. So I'm going to have to look into that more. It seems like there's a lot of ingredients from the few recipes that I found. Um, and I'm going to have to make that this, this summer. And uh, I don't know if it's only served at weddings or if that's where all the translated recipes are coming from because it's okay. it's something that is always served. I guess if there's a wedding, there is supposedly this, but it's just like any tradition. I'm sure there's plenty of exceptions where it's not, but the stereotypical wedding would have boar honey. Got it. And this New York Times article, um, it has re- these recipes in it? No, it doesn't have any of those. Those okay. are just actually you side mentions. To. The only reason why I'm bringing it up really is because it's um, a reminder that it's yogurt drink time. I mean, it's like I drink smoothies throughout the winter um, just because it's kind of a routine I do in, in the mornings with different things. But but this is something where it's like, you know, sweet or savory. There are plenty of options as it starts to get warmer. And um, and I guess some people like Borhani is kind of also referred to as Lassi since, it's, you know, it's kind of India inspired as well. Um so yeah, so a salted mint lassie is kind of what, like, it seems like Burhani has a lot of mint in it often, uh, and salt and, 
Um, salt and yogurt just go so well together when it's when it's watered down a little bit. Hmm. I'm gonna have to try um, this the borhani that you're talking about because I just I just went to the New York Times article and the pictures they have on there on the website look fantastic. Yeah, I think that everyone should make more of these yogurt drinks. I just, it's interesting not having grown up in a culture where yogurt is any more than a flavored kind. I mean, I ate a decent amount of plain yogurt when I was growing up, but um, like that it's, it's just like a flavored thing. Whereas like plain yogurt can do so much with like in the sense of making things that aren't, you know, like a, like a strawberry banana um, premixed thing, like adding them mm-hmm. afterwards. Like there's just, it's so versatile in cooking and in drinks that I, I love it. And so it's that time of season again. Yeah. And I guess I can see where um, it can be substituted instead of having a smoothie um, or what we would consider a smoothie um, with all of the fruit and that added sugar and that sort of thing, or even like a milkshake or something. I can see how this would be very refreshing on a very hot day because milk, if it's cool, cold at least to me if it's very cold but not frozen like ice cream or um, frozen yogurt just drinking it that's extremely refreshing oh yeah and and adding a little bit of like so it's not quite as thick um, I think helps a lot too like iron I just actually realized though the bohani is actually only about a half cup of water to five cups of yogurt so there it's it's still way thicker um, but like just for people, so I'm not just saying spices for Bohani, a lot of these recipes have things like ground pepper, ground mustard, mint leaves, coriander, and cumin, along with some green chilies and, uh, and salt and a, a little bit of sugar to kind of, I guess, balance that all out. But it, that one sounds really interesting to me. Yeah, that sounds really good. I'm going to have to make it, um, and find a recipe and, and make it at home, uh, and, because that to me just sounds like we just had an entire week of just over 90 degree weather. Um, and it would have been really great to come home. <laughs> and okay, we, we don't have an air conditioner or anything. So there's really no relief from the heat. And that would have been extremely refreshing to come home to, to have some sort of, um, you know, yogurt, yogurt drink uh, that with mint in it or something like that. So, so it seems like it next time it's really hot. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe we can like do something uh you know, you take spring and I'll take fall like you know when when it starts getting warmer for you which it's been still like getting down to freezing at at night here whereas you have 90 degrees like you can start testing out all these summer beverage recipes and summer refreshing things when I'm still not quite in the mood for them and then come fall when it starts to probably get colder here sooner before your like full winter hits I don't even know when you actually get very cold but you know then i'll have all those like you know cozy foods and different things that i will have researched and 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 tried and um you know we can kind of balance each other out so like the other one is like prepped and ready to go there you go we'll do that and i can give you some some tidbit tidbits and pointers maybe and maybe some recipes i create so that stuff like that so yeah if anyone wants to find a borhani recipe you're on your own this week because i haven't tried any neither of us have and so i don't I'm not going to put up any recipes for that, but you can get uh, how that's spelled and everything else in the, in the New York times article that will be in the show notes. Do you have anything else for this week? No, I'm going to follow up on this um, kimchi sauerkraut, kimchi um, South Korea wedding debacle that my friend was telling about, because I just think that that's really interesting. Um, And kind of a, just such a different tradition. 
um, that I've never even heard of before that people would do this. So I just find that really, really cool. Um, so I'm going to talk to her more about it. So I'll get back to everyone later. Yeah, I'm interested to hear more too. And it's always, it's always hard to really fully translate the concept of those kind of things too. Like, yeah, you know, because it's drastically different cultures in many ways too. So it'll be interesting to get somewhat of an insider perspective and, you know, like insider slash outsider since like, you know, she's been in the States for who knows how long too. So yeah, I definitely am interested to hear more about that. So uh, you'll be able to find all of these notes, show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 66. And you can find us on Twitter at firmup and on Facebook at firmup and anywhere else at firmup. And until next time, firm up.